Hi, and welcome to the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. In this podcast, I interview chainsaw carvers from all over the world to get different perspectives, ideas, and tips to learn more about chainsaw carving. In this episode, I get to talk to Dennis Beach. Um, It's a great episode. I learn a lot of cool things. We did have a little bit of audio difficulty uh, for a few minutes in the middle, but hopefully you can still hear everything that Dennis had to say. Hi, Dennis. Hey, how's it going out there? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good. A little bit cold, but I'm not out firewood today. I'm just sitting by the fire, putting it in a wood burner. (laughs) That's a good idea. It's been below zero here for quite a while. Yeah, it's a a little bit chilly here. It's not too bad, but I've worked outside so many years. I appreciate sitting in the house a little bit during the really cold stuff. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and I should I should ask for everybody. So where where are you located? Oh, I'm in Pennsylvania, like the, like around the northeast corner. So if everybody knows where Ridgeway is, you just head east, but stop before you get to New Jersey. Okay, always Sounds good. Stop before you get to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so first question. Yeah. What What's your story? How did you get started in this crazy chainsaw carving world? Well, to start with, last night I was thinking about this, and I got thinking. I've been telling everybody I've been carving for thirty-seven years, and I got adding up on my fingers and toes. And I think I've been carving for forty years because wow. I started really young. I out of high school, I got a job with the with the with the Burke Forge building uh, railroad cars and and armor plate for tanks, and then when I got laid off there, um, I went and worked on the farm. And almost starved to death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then and then got a job with the tree trimming company, Aspen. And and that's how I got introduced to chainsaws. I think there's probably a number of guys out there that started as tree trimmers. Mm-hmm. Um, not really not having any any art background or and I didn't really have any chainsaw background either. So so when I started fooling around with the saw at work. It was just really experimental because, you know, I had never at that time, I had never known anybody that that ever did it. I thought I was a first person in the entire world. But but uh, talking to like 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 Steve Backus, our historian on chainsaw carving, I guess I guess it started all over the world. Like at that time, not the world, but the United States around that time. But but before even before that, it started because I wasn't. You know, when I started, I wasn't I wasn't using like the real old heavy antique chainsaws, okay, which kind of more modern ones, but not according to today's standards. But well, you know, my first chainsaw that I actually owned was one of those old. It was a Homolite Zip, one of those square ones that stand up. Sure. <laughs> but it ran good, and. Uh, and I just loved it. I just, I think the main thing was, is I fell in love with it because I would, I would come home from work and carve at night at work. I would carve during lunch break and, and carve on the weekends. You know, we'd have family picnics and I would take a, a log and a chainsaw. And I think in the beginning, all I had was a Camaro. <laughs> we would, <laughs> we had a five man crew. So we would like roll the window down on the door you know, and stick this log in the back seat and have it stick out the passenger side window and then slam the door shut. <laughs> <laughs> I drop everybody off 
And I'd go home to my trailer court, and I was trying to get this log out of my car by myself. But I don't know. You know, so when, when you're that young and strong, you can, you can do anything. Right. When you said you were, like, doing it at, at family picnics and stuff, what would your family think at first? I, I don't know what they think because, you know what, I never asked them. I just did it. <laughs> they, all, they all kind of thought it was interesting. It's a little something for them to look. You know, while they were playing horseshoes and bean bags and, and eating, you know, corn on the cob and yeah, family get together type stuff at that time. But but then it, it, it got, you know, of course it grew. And actually, I actually think the very first year that I was carving, I ended up, I went to the Bloomsburg Fair and the uh, Cherry Springs Woodsman's Carnival, which is like the two biggest shows that there was at that time for for carvers to go to. Well, I was the only carver. Well, no, there wasn't. It was old. There was a guy down in the oh, I can't remember his name, but anyway, he was at Knobles Grove. We always called him Baldy. I probably he's, everybody still calls him Baldy. <laughs> he kind of helped me get along and get started into the first couple shows I went to. Oh, that's cool. You know, and then. Then after I, I worked those shows for a while and you know what what happened next? Really, I guess it was I got a call from a uh, he's a good friend now, Kevin McDonald. At the time, I didn't know him. And he says, you should come up and compete in my ice carving competition. I said, I don't know nothing about ice. He said, come on up. I'll teach you. He just he just needed he didn't he needed carvers for his ice carving competition. So he taught me how to carve ice. And. Uh, I think I took third place in his competition that year. Oh wow! Um, so that that kicked off my my ice carving part of it, which was about five years into the, my carving career. And then, and then it wasn't too much longer after that. You know, then I then I started doing the, some competitions, and I took some of my ice carving skills over into the competition of of wood. But at that time. At that time, they weren't the, the carvers weren't piecing anything together, and I and I came there with my with my templates and and chopped the log in six eight pieces and you know they thought I was crazy and until it all started to look like something and I started like a slowly assembling the pieces back and I don't even remember exactly what that first big one was I I think that first one might have been a Indian shooting a bow and arrow in the air with an eagle on its back. Which was a cool piece, you know. It it is really neat how um, you know ice carving pushes wood carving and and vice versa because they you know there's similarities and there's differences and there's things that you can you know cross over. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you know what you're looking for, you can see it. It's just like, yeah, that guy definitely was a he definitely was an ice carver because there was some there are some guys doing wood now. That were were really world class ice carvers back when I was ice carving, and uh, and they they carry their skills out and and do and do the and, and the the stuff they're doing now is just phenomenal with putting the pieces together on their wood carving pieces. Um, it it is it is kind of neat to watch the whole thing kind of evolve and and keep getting better. We I think I think there was a time I'd sit around with a couple of the guys. This was way back, and we'd said, you know what? What's going to happen to this art form if if we get some guys in here that like really actually took art class <laughs> <laughs> and, and they aren't lazy 
they're hardworking guys and they're young and they and they really are good artists. We said, you know, this place is this, this art form is just going to really take off. And then that's exactly what happened. You get you get that a lot of new guys coming in. They have art training and 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 really skilled and 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 do multiple. You know, like they do paintings and drawings and clay sculptures and ice sculptures and. And then everybody brings all their knowledge to the table when it comes to wood carving and, and combine it all in there. Uh, oh, my gosh, the whole world jumped forward when 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 the guys started using um, uh, the airbrushes, you know, for oh, yeah. painting fine lines. I mean, I had an airbrush, God, years and years and years ago, but I only use it for like one or two projects. And I don't know. I don't know if it didn't work right or it, it just got put aside on the cup on the shelf for for 20 years until it got reintroduced and some of the guys were doing some real nice work with it. Uh, ben Risney is out there doing some really nice work with it. And a lot of the different guys out shadowing, you know, even if even if you're just running one color in your gun, just a brown stain and all you're going to do is shadow with it. It's it's just poof. It just brings it alive. You know, and, and God bless the guys that can get in there and put, and then, you know, or take the time to do all the different colors and, and, and do the real super fine lines. Wow. Joe, Joe Dusha does an excellent job with that, with the airbrush, but he was trained in it and he had knowledge in it. Um, a bunch of us like wood hackers. I always said, you know, we pick up an airbrush and we're like, we never took a lesson in our lives, but we, we throw some paint in there and squeeze the button and, Paint comes out, so you know. I know with me, um, I did a lot of. Well, I shouldn't say a lot. I did some airbrushing with like water-based paints, but at shows, trying to use water-based paints, I was always clogging my airbrush. So that's why I set mine aside. But uh, you know, talking to these guys, they're all use. Well, I shouldn't say they're all, but a lot of the guys I've talked to are using oil base, so that <laughs> it doesn't clog when you're trying to hurry. You know. Well, I, I use I use oil base and I figure I always figure water base would clog less, but I've I've never actually tried it. You know, here I am. I'm, I'm you know, I'm an old pro at the whole thing. All these 40 years of carving and I've never tried water based paint out of an air gun. Yeah. But I, I figure, man, that'd be nice because when you're done with it, just keep a five gallon bucket of water and just throw the whole thing right in the bucket. Right. Keep, keep it from drying because I, I definitely am not gonna stop during the day and wash my my air gun out three or four times. Yeah. In fact, I, I don't, I've got, you know, on my oil base, I just, I just take the stain bottle off, stick it to the side. I run some, I run some thinner through it. Actually, no, I run gasoline through it. And then I got a cup with a little hole cut in the top of it, just so my airbrush can, the tip of it can stick in. And it just sets in, it just sets in like a bath of, of thinner gasoline, black or whatever I happen to have. Yeah. And and then I never have to clean it because in the past, every time I went to clean an airbrush, I always ruined it. I always ruined all the washers inside. And <laughs> the air would blow back through and blow through the, the paint bottle. And I'm calling Joe Douche. Joe, what's wrong with my air gun? Yep. Said, well, you just ruined another one. Throw it away. <laughs> so buy another cheap one. I, I think what he was thinking was just don't buy a good one until you stop destroying these cheap ones. <laughs> That's good advice. But yeah, I I wish I would have got into the airbrush more in the past because because like 
Oh, well, like just like when I had like my 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 yellow show truck, which is now retired, but we hand we hand painted those logos on the side of that truck with paint little paintbrushes, yeah. which would would have been nice to get in there with an airbrush and just and and do it like that. But right, that was actually know. one thing I was going to ask you. Yeah. Um, I feel like you're really known for your incredible fair setup. Like when you mentioned your yellow truck, can you kind of tell us, tell us about it or what, what's important in your fair setup? Well, the fair setup, the fair setup started, started with one of them dining canopies with the guide ropes. And then when I used to go to a big show, I would just carve uh, like two or three big, like eight foot tall bears and then just tie the tent onto the bears. You know, and then it moved from there up to like one of those, the 10 by 20 tents that everybody has. But I would put a plywood floor down. And okay. and then I, I, I moved up to like taller legs on the tent. And then I moved up to an elevated floor. And and then when I finally got, I got this truck. And I always had this truck in my, my head. I wanted a truck with a, a door on the side. I don't know where I got that idea from, and I think it was a, an old John Wayne movie where he was friends with these gypsies that had a, a show wagon that the side would open up into a stage. I don't know. Sure. You, you know, you you pick up you pick up different things through life, and so I got I found a truck with a with a side door that opened, and I'm like, man, all we need is some big old barn hinges. You know, me being a country boy, that's what I thought. Barn hinges, why? Because that's how you hinge big things. So, yeah. Put the stage out. It wasn't big enough. So I put wings on it and uh, put some adjustable legs underneath it. So, and, and sturdy too. Cause I, you know, cause you actually, you think, well, I'll just like put this little log out there, you know, right up until you're at a show and then your, your brain stops and your ego takes over. Now, pretty soon <laughs> you're rolling, you get five guys from the audience and you roll this like 800 pound log out onto the stage. And and I was a whole. It, it never completely collapsed, but every year I would like have to get you know pick it up and and roll it like pick the bottom of the stage up and get under there and then put screws and wood glue and metal brackets to hold this thing together because it would right. crack break and um. But it was all as I was always thinking of the show. I always wanted to sell the entertainment part of it, which. You know, I got it. I got a good grasp on it. Never went, never got it to the point where I really was aiming for. But you know, but I was aiming high. I was aiming so high. I wanted to get paid for the entertainment without even having to really carve much of anything. But yeah, but if, you know, I watched the other shows at the fairs, the entertainment shows. They had loudspeakers, so I got a loudspeaker and the and the music, you know, and the and the, the amplifiers and. And got all the lights and oh man! And from there, I was trying all kinds of stuff. I tried strobe lights. I used to try and do a night show where I would like duct tape flashlights onto my chainsaw and then carve, <laughs> which didn't work. The flashlights got smashed. People, <laughs> what I was doing, and I'm like, all right, okay, I'll do the fire show. What you know? Well, you see these other guys are saying, oh well, we did the fire show. They they dump a little gasoline on and light it. Well, I hollowed out a log and then put my big torch down in the bottom of it and made like a, um, it was like a 
jet engine, this thing. And once it got going, I would put a leaf blower down and which would really make it roar. I'm talking, it had flames shooting out 20 feet high and sparks. And I'm doing this out of there. So you had to do it someplace where the wind was blowing all the sparks into like a, a vacant parking lot. And <laughs> small children and <laughs> baby carriages and dogs and stuff. So, so it would, it would take a lot of work to set it up because I put netting around it. So I had to find a volunteer that worked the, uh, the garden hose because he had to like spray me with water while I was carving. Because I'm wow. hot. It was not, this was, this wasn't like a little smoke coming out. This was like a blowtorch. And yeah. then I had somebody sitting back plugging and unplugging the leaf blower because if it got blasting too hot, it would like scorch my hair. <laughs> <laughs> remember we it all was good until we burnt we burned up the leaf the leaf blower burned up and caught on fire and <laughs> it just got to be so much work you know but right. people looking forward to it this one fair i would do it like every every friday night was was you know fire show night and it worked it worked good for a while what else did i oh i tried i tried to uh, you know, like on your rock and roll bands, you got the smoke machine with smoke rolling out. Oh, yeah. Um, so I got one of those and the smoke's rolling out like before the show and I'm playing my introduction music and nobody really looks like they're really all too enthused. A couple of people asked me if I had anything on fire in my truck. I'm like, no, <laughs> like rock and roll smoke. Don't you know? Like I'm a rock and roll star. They're like, no, we didn't know that. So... <laughs> So I would get up on stage and start carving. Well, I always had fans to get rid of the exhaust fumes. So when the exhaust fumes build up, I had to turn the fans on, and that which blew away all my rock and roll smoke. Oh, so, sure. So I scrapped that. You know what else? Oh, I had I built a carousel one time. So because I'm thinking, well, when they're watching you carve, they're only seeing one side. So if you had a carousel that turned really slow, they could see all sides of it. Well, the carousel turned, it turned slow, but just a little bit too fast. You almost had to run around and kind of chase it around, you know? Oh, yeah. So I ended up, I just kind of like dug my feet and took the stance and just carved like hell as it's spinning around. I'm slowly, I'm just carving, carving, carving. And it just didn't have the effect because somebody's like, well, we always like to see you like move around, you know, do your, do your moves. You know, the carving was moving, but you were standing still. So, <laughs> so I sat that on the I sat down on the ground and just put a nice piece on it, let it turn through the whole fair. Oh sure. Yeah. Then I had a, a hydra, an air over hydraulic lift with a foot control, so I could make it go up and down with my foot, so I could carve the head and then make it go up while I'm carving, and I could have it go up while I'm carving it. And, I don't know. I think it was. I think I ended up. It was wiggly. I don't. I don't, I don't like my stuff wiggly. I like mm -hmm. it heavy, good, strong. Even when I'm doing a stand-up piece, like a three, four feet tall piece, I I screw it down to the stage. Even if it's a eighteen-inch diameter log, I'll screw it right down. Yeah. Keep it from wiggling, because I like a I like a hit on them pretty good. Sometimes. Yeah, I don't like it when stuff moves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like to slam them, and which kind of broke some chains over the years. These guys are like, oh, yeah, I run this nice tiny little chain on this, like, 24-inch bar. I'm like, yeah, that would last me about five minutes. 
I'd have that snapped, which I did. I snapped a lot of chains over the years, but it's always worth it. It was if you're gonna throw a saw just for the effect, if you have to break break it a little bit, just just fix it. Go back <laughs> all in the show and and for being I don't know, how would I say for being at the same show or being at the same show that the auction brought the fair so much money, I just kept working my price up. So I got paid really good. So and I still do. So it doesn't really matter how many chainsaws I break. I just go out and just go out and buy another one. And you just right. buy it. And then I don't buy the cheap ones. You buy really good ones. If they break, you just fix my you know what when they break, I'll take a magic marker and I'll write right on the saw what's wrong with it. Or scratch it in with a pocket knife and then throw it to the side. Then when I pick it up later, I'll know what's wrong with it and how to fix it. Sure. That's a good idea because when you start to get a lot of saws, sometimes you can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. But I usually I usually take a full a full second string of saws on the road. Like if the first string is you know, six saws, I'll have I'll have twelve saws with me on the road. So if one breaks, I don't have to I don't I don't have to fix it. I usually do. I usually just yeah. hang out in the hang out in the truck afterwards. But, but oh yeah, get, getting back to the truck. Um it's like a permanent workshop out on the road. When I when I set that truck up, I put I put receptacles everywhere I need one. I put air air supply everywhere I need it. And like each of my grinders have I never change a bit in the grinder. I just have I think I have six five five die grinders and uh, at least one right angle grinder, if not more. And there's a holder for each one. And each one has just enough cord on it to reach out all the way out onto stage and to the far end of the stage. And boom, right there, that's all the that's all the extra cord. And each each one, when you're done with it, you, you go like one, two, three flips of the cord, and there's a wooden peg sticking out. You flip your you flip your wire on the peg, tool goes in the holder. That's it. It's done. There's a and then you always know exactly where everyone is. You're not plugging and unplugging tools, and it makes it makes it go so much faster. And every oh, yeah, I bet. yeah, and and before every show, every saw is gassed and sharpened. Every saw sits in the same spot. Now they may look like they're just on the floor, throw to the side, but all the small ones are to the right, all the big ones are to the left, and they're all in a row. So you know, maybe maybe you might not know the exact saw you're reaching for, but if you want a medium sized saw, just grab one in the middle. <laughs> and, sure. And you and you got it. So. Yeah, I that, imagine all that organization is really important when you're trying to put on a show and move quick. Right, right. And then I, I hooked up my air, my uh, my paint gun, my little airbrush. I, I got that hooked up with just enough, same thing, just enough hose to reach out to the end of the stage. Now, you know, that, that you can, it's got a dis quick disconnect. You could actually take that out in the field and, and use it on the end of the air hose. You know, but I got, I just have two, two colors, just black and brown and just, just because it's quick, you know. Right. If you need white, if you need white, just use a rattle can and hope you don't need a nice, a nice fine spray. I was actually on the in on the market trying to find a a nozzle with a fine, a fine tip, 
that you could shoot a fine line like you do on an airbrush. But as far as I know, I I haven't found one yet that they for make. A, to put on a rattle can. Yeah, just on a rattle can. That, I have to. I have to imagine with the graffiti artists that they have to have something. You know they love they love big nozzles that shoot heavy and lots. Hmm. Yeah, I sent away. I got. I don't know. I don't know if you could count by numbers or dollar amounts, but I got a lot of different spray nozzles, spray cans, and and uh, you know, nothing fine tipped. Nothing, nothing fine tipped. Because huh. if you could, you could. Then wouldn't that be nice if you had like ten colors and all fine tips? You could take that airbrush and just retire it. You won't. You wouldn't have to wash another airbrush in your life. Right. Just you know, just buy a whole shitload of these tips. Then just you know, and then have a glass jar that you could just throw these tips in with with lacquer thinner in it, and just keep keep reusing them. Yeah. But but, but I ain't found it yet. That was another. That was my brainstorm. I thought for sure that was it. I could right. I could have nozzles, but. <laughs> I get a lot of brainstorms, and every once in a while, you'll get one that works, or you'll get five that works, but by about the second show of the season, the second fair, then you find out this is it's bullshit. It's just a little bit too much work. I don't really have time to do this new idea that I came up with. It's not essential. And then, and then before you know it, you're right down to bare basics like caveman. You know, you got your, you're right back to like, chainsaw right angle grinder two die grinders a little torch flap wheel and you're done and, and push it aside and get ready for the next show you're doing four shows a day i've done you know the four shows a day is tough but anybody could do four shows a day but can they do that six days in a row pack and unpack the seventh day and then do that for like two months straight every single day that's the, that's the tough part right Oh, I can imagine. And I know sometimes like, and I don't, I don't do fares because the the fares by me that I've been in contact with don't, don't want to pay. <laughs> but um, after a show, if my husband's with, I'm so thankful that he can help me pack because mm. when, you, when you're packing by yourself and you just worked all day, you're exhausted. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's so many times if you're doing what they call a circus jump where you're leaving you're leaving someplace on a, on a Sunday night and you have to carve Monday morning. So you have to pack at night and drive at night and then set up in the morning and car start carving by noon. That's tough. I I've gotten rid of those, 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 but, but the, but the work in seven days a week, I'll usually pack on a Saturday night and then pull out Sunday, early Sunday morning. You know, all the carny, all the carnies pull out Saturday night. So when you wake up in the morning, that's the place is kind of like a ghost town. And then you can get out and get this might, this might be a good. So I was going to ask you, um, how have you seen like chainsaw carving events and or fairs change over the years since you've been doing it for a while? Uh, well, in the beginning, the beginning i was just looking for places to set up that you know and and i was paying to get in and then pretty soon i was getting so many i said well you know i'll go i'll go to your event but i'm not paying nothing and mm -hmm. then i so booked up and then i was like okay well then you got to pay me 
you know, hundred dollars for the weekend if or I can't make it. I got other places to go. Yeah. But, which it took years to work that up, you know. Now if carvers can step into the carving show world and say, Oh yeah, well carvers are getting two hundred a day or or six hundred a day. You know, sometimes I get educated and I'm not finding out these guys are making, you know, six, seven hundred a day just in just in the entertainment fee and they're keeping all their carvings. Which is which is great. I mean the higher price we can get the better. Yeah. Um, but but I mean what really what really boosted me ahead was the deal where you get paid a high daily rate, the fair keeps all the carvings and then has an auction at the end. So it's kind of like selling your carvings in bulk at a at at a you know a wholesale price is which is wonderful and that was that was brian ruth came up with that one and it was probably probably one of the biggest things that ever vaulted the industry forward was was that concept right there and and the show times and doing show times scheduled show times it was a love-hate relationship because if you don't have scheduled show times and you don't have to start at any certain time it's really hard to get a lot of work done that day. But if you're if you if you post them out front, show times two, four, six, and eight, you're going to be there. You're going to do that show from hell or high water. You don't care if you stub your toe or if you're half bleeding to death. You'll put some black tape on it and you'll you get up there on stage and you do the show. Right. You know, hardest thing is is mentally getting burned out. Where I've already sat back behind that truck and was like. Damn, the last thing I want to do on the face of this earth is to go up there and carve another show. I'd rather just sit right down here and cry. But it's always if you could get if you could get them saws gassed, if you could get on stage and pull that cord and start that saw, everything's fine. Everything it's just getting getting that loaded saw in your hands. Almost like you need a helper to start the saw and say, okay, there's a there's a log. I put a log up there. You're carving a bear. And, you know, right. find the helper you need. <laughs> it's kind of like a mental block, like like an athlete has. Yeah, it's just from. Well, if you're carving four shows a day and you're and you're on your fifth or sixth fair, and I think what's I think what's the worst is when you see in the light at the end of the tunnel, because toward the end of the summer you would start doing like a four day show instead of a six day show. And then you look on the calendar and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I got three more, three more of these shows and it's the end. I'm, I get a week off. Yeah. Well, that, that's usually the hardest part right there. <laughs> yeah. Right. If you don't light at the end of the tunnel, you just keep trudging on. <laughs> but, but like I said, it's, it's, it's a love hate thing because I, I really like doing shows. I like doing them. I like the audience. I like, I like to get a lot of work done. It's just at the end of the week when they put them up for auction and and you've got a, a whole a whole lineup of carvings like like all of your all of your best carvings because because you actually like when you leave that fair you'll go to the next fair you'll carve the same carvings you know you'll start off you'll have your perched eagle and you know your bear in a stump and your bear holding a welcome sign and right. Your cardinal bench and 
and you've already carved you've already carved at four different fairs so you've did all those carvings four times already this spring so that and that that helps you speed things up because you you know what you're doing you can i'll walk up to a log pile and i'll be like okay that was the eagle this is the bear in the stump oh over there there's the buckhead that one's got to be i hope it's a good log i know just from doing it so long i imagine i I think that's part of the reason why I'm kind of slow is I mainly do commissions and I'm not carving the same stuff over and over. So I, I have to think too long. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Commissions. I used to carve with Rick Mack, you know, great carver. He passed away. Um, he was, I call, he's called him my numbers man and he would keep track of numbers and, and, he did all commission work for like two weeks. And then for the next two weeks, he did not a single commission. He just hammered out, you know, pieces that he wanted to carve. And he made 75% more money that way than he did doing commissions. Yeah. He would make 75% less money doing commissions. Because I've heard that told- from a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. But. Well, it's now if you've got a really good roadside market and you could sell all of your pieces, that's great. You know, or if in the summertime you go to a fair and do do auction shows or or something. But a lot of carvers have to rely on their on their commission pieces or or stump, you know, stump jobs, which is like a commission piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go you could go do your stump job and you could say, hey, you know, if somebody wants a squirrel, you could say, oh, yeah, I'm not doing a squirrel. Do I'm gonna do bears. If you don't like it, I'll pack my sauce up and leave. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Yeah, yeah, but 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 carving fast it helps a lot when you're when you're doing pieces that you're you're so used to doing. Because right. you can you know you can do your you can do your 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 one or two big cuts. So you got a nice big face, big flat face. If you make one big cut, you got a big flat face looking at you. Now you can draw that silhouette on, and now you can cut that side silhouette out. Well, now you're 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 cooking if you got them if you got that much down correctly without screwing up too badly. <laughs> right. <laughs> when I when I you know when I'm doing shows, I do a lot of a head work. You know when I'm doing benches in the morning, I'll wake up and I'll do, I'll assemble the whole bench and carve carve half of it or three quarters of it. And then come showtime, I'll get up there and I'll just carve one bear, one end of the bench and do it that way. Or say if I'm doing a big, say like I'm doing a big soaring eagle, okay, set your log up. So I'll make all the cuts on the backside, like the back of his wings, all the swoopy cuts for the back of the wings all the way down. And then you can get on there and you can draw the silhouette of the eagle's head and the tail and the outline of the wings. And you can turn that all back toward the back of the truck the audience can't even see that you know so a lot of times they don't even know that you spent an hour on your piece before the show started yeah you know? and then you can you carve it out in half an hour and they're like oh my gosh you did that in half an hour well yeah but i got out of bed at nine this morning and <laughs> the first show didn't start till two or twelve usually i start my first show at two you know, you got to wait till you get some people in the fair. But in an ask for carving fast, because I get a lot of people to say, oh, man, you know, you carve so fast. 
So I'll go over there and carve. Maybe I'll go and carve with them. So I pick up one of their saws and I make a couple cuts. And the saw is like a, is a piece of crap. You know, it's, <laughs> maybe it's a, a cheap saw. Or, I'm not saying I ran a lot of cheap saws, but I got in there and I modified the mufflers. I after it was broken, I get in there with the, to the carburetor and I tweak the carburetor. But then you got to watch, you know, burn out the rings on it. But you got to know what you're doing. Yeah. And, and and knock them rakers down, them drags, you know, grind the back of them teeth off, you know, get that chain as sharp as she's well, as sharp as the motor will carry it. And then when you then when you're carving, you can then you can if you can cut really fast, as long as your brain can keep up with your saw. <laughs> I, yeah, I had a saw. I couldn't. I had a saw. It was a was a husky 357 i think i had a 3 8 chain on it with a 14 or a 16 inch bar and i'm telling you what that socket cut so fast i i really had a difficult time keeping up with with the saw itself it was making the cut before i could come up with the next cut in my head which is which is fast yeah that's incredible yeah I, and I think that's all burned up in my barn when my barn burned, and I never replaced it. I should have went out and got another one. Oh, I mean, I, I couldn't keep a chain on. I kept snapping them three eighths chains. Yeah. So I, that's why I switched. The, I switched to three twenty five, and then it slowed down just a little bit. But I wasn't snapping chains because that three twenty five chains are really is a good strong chain, which in, in years ago nobody used them. But, okay. Yeah, everybody had. Loops and loops of 325 chain hanging in their barn because nobody carved with it because they made I think they made a like a low profile 325 which was just was pretty much worthless. Huh. Yeah, you, you had to root you had to root through your pile and pick out the high the high profile 325 and then you could you could make that rock and roll. So. I like I like that quote. If your brain can keep up with your saw. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And you don't. I don't ever think about that too much. I think about it a lot when I think back on that, back on that one, that three fifty seven I had. But I don't know if my. It's hard to imagine my brain would ever get any faster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, or maybe the saws got slower. I don't. Maybe I don't tweak them as much as I used to because them Husky XLs. I just. I don't really do too much to them. I don't. I don't drill holes in the muffler and. I don't adjust the carburetors to make them scream. So are they? Pr- they're just pretty fast stock, like right out of the box. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. And you know, a lot of times in the past, I don't know if it was ever really worth. You know, when you when you tweak all that stuff out, you do get extra power out of the saw. But you know, a lot of times, you're taking away a lot of years off of its life. You know, especially if you've loaned it to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got. Well, you know, once you get that saw tweaked out, you you gotta be, you gotta feather that that throttle. You can't be squeezing that throttle. Right. And a lot of they, you know, they they start the saw, they squeeze the throttle, and they never let their finger off of it till the till the saw runs out of gas. And it's know? funny too. I never really noticed. I feather the throttle a lot, and then when I go to like a competition or or some kind of event, and there's somebody carving next to me that has their saw wide open the whole time. I'm always like, 
man, like it just sounds, it's so loud and it just sounds different because that's not how I carve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, well, I like to, as long as I got some load on that chain, I'll have that, that throttle squeezed. But yeah, as soon as you pick that saw up and there's no load on it, you got to let your finger off that throttle. Right. Because if it free runs and it overheats and burns your rings, that is if you have it leaned out. Yeah. You, just, that's why the, you know, the, the boys at the factory, they set the saws that, that you could just duct tape that trigger open and it ain't going to blow up mm-hmm. because they, there's, there's people out there that'll do that. But then you don't, you don't, your saw isn't running at top performance either then. Right. Like dogging a little bit. So I was going to ask you too, you're a pretty avid outdoorsman. Do you ever combine carving and hunting trips or is it kind of a separate thing? Well, it's pretty much a separate thing, but sometimes well, I do whenever I can. I, I did that a little bit in Germany. Um, and and after after Libby, Montana last year, it was definitely after Montana. We uh, me and my girlfriend, Sandra, we hiked through the mountains, uh, I think, for five days. We, you know, we walked up and seen waterfalls and lakes and, and she flew back. And my buddy drove out with all my hunting gear. So I jumped in his truck and off we went. We backpacked up up into the mountains with our bows and arrows and hunted elk. It's, I tell you what, it's not easy to shoot an elk with a bow and arrow. No, <laughs> no, I imagine not. No, but I don't I don't combine that as much as I should. But in the summer in the fair circuit, it's just it's really just concentrate on just, just getting them getting them fares done. Yeah, and it, well, it's probably a whole different set of gear too to bring along. Yeah, yeah, like the hunting, the hunting, and boy, if you're gonna drive out, you're gonna pull your, your carving gear and your hunting gear. It's just, it's just too much. Right. I, I drove. We drove out to Montana and did that. When my when my yellow truck was running, well, that yellow truck had a really small motor. It was just a gutless wonder. It was like driving a giant cardboard box down the highway with a rubber band wound up for the motor. And we drove <laughs> that thing all the way to Montana with chainsaws and camping gear and, and, and hunting gear and stuff. Uh, and we did it. It, went, it was successful, but uh, I don't know if I want to. Paul, and again, I'm not going out again this year. Let's see, last year I gave all my saws to one of my neighbor carvers here, and he hauled all my saws out. And then I flew out with a with a suitcase full of grinders, you know, and grinder mats and stuff. Sure. And then and then and stayed in one hunt, but. But of course, I, one of the saws I sent out were my third string saws because on my first organ, of course, you know, I had my first string and second string. So the third string saws, I was up in the old horse barn digging through the pile of saws. And they had all ran when I threw them in there, you know, five, eight years before that. So I had to get them all running. And to my buddies in the springtime so that he would have them store them in his barn till the end of summer to hold him in Montana. So it's like a lot of planning. 
Yeah, yeah, it does sound like a lot of planning. A lot of planning because because once I started my fair circuit, he was starting his travel circuit. We weren't going to see each other until we shook hands in Montana, like like four months, five months later. So yeah, it was quite interesting. Do you think like how does all of your time outdoors, like you know, hunting or hiking or anything, how does that affect your carving and your creativity and what you make? Well, you know, as a carver, I'm always looking at everything. I was, I don't know. I think I look at things more intensely than most people. You know, sometimes I just look at rocks, just trees, the way they grow and crooked. I had one archery trip was with Joe and Tom in Colorado, and we were looking at amongst them big old red cedars, them old twisted. Like God, they were so beautiful. Yeah. So I, I, I think I half skipped elk hunting and just took pictures of dead trees the whole time. But, but I think it's, I think it's more to keep me from getting burned out because from pushing so hard for so many years. When the COVID summer came up, which was the COVID COVID summer was was what twenty twenty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've lost track. <laughs> yeah, 2020. And they told me that I was a non-essential worker and that I should shut down my business. And you know what I said? I said, that is just fine with me. Boom, my <laughs> shirt. Every, every fair was shut down. Random jeans, I was just sat out there and I just grabbed my fishing pole and we put a license on the boat. I bought new hiking boots and camping gear. and. and I think we joined that uh, that hiking thing on Facebook where they were where you could go. They 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 show you where all the all the trails are, hiking trails and waterfalls. And we just okay. hiked the new waterfalls, you know, all the time. It was the best summer I had since I was in high school, and had summer vacation. <laughs> <laughs> That's was, awesome. And then the next year when I went back to Clark. I think it was my best, my best carving year ever. It was like the, the auctions were like record high auctions. I didn't carve as much. I don't know. Something inside of me said, well, you know, you don't have to carve that hard. And I did, but I carved this long. That's the same amount of hours. And the carvings were like, poof, they were just so much nicer. I think because I was like more enthused on it. Um, so. So yeah, then I think they were talking about shutting shutting down Pennsylvania again. I'm like, yeah, do it, do it. (laughs) (laughs) I got all my camping gear here. I got some MREs and some dry food. Let's go. Well, that's cool that it was so like rejuvenating and and helped with your creativity and everything. Yeah, I think that was the that's the main thing. That and and sometimes I just get enthused. I'm going on a I'm going on a mountain lion hunt here in a couple of weeks, and and uh, I think I think I'm probably just going to start carving mountain lions now after that hunt's over. I'll be, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, I'll be out in the barn, you know, doing mountain lions. I'll probably drive out and, and carve some jojo because the stupid lions are crazy good. Yeah, yeah, the one that he carved in in uh, Libby was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and I like to like hanging around. He's just like, he's just a good guy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, the whole, and then the whole, 
that whole gang or the bodies. There was, I used to like, I used to, whenever I was like, like feeling like really high strung, I'd go out and part with Rick. But he was so mellow. <laughs> so right. I'd, mellow, I'd mellow him down and then, you know, he would mellow me down and I would pep him up and, and we car for a week and then I'd come home and everything was good. <laughs> That's awesome. It's so cool to just know, to know that about different people and just to surround yourself with people that you know are like uplifting and make you a better person. Yeah, that was it's always a good a good trip out there to hang out with them boys. So, do you have any advice for carvers that are wanting to be like an entrepreneur, you know, and have their own carving business, especially with this crazy like I don't know if I want to call it unstable economy. Like what, what advice do you have for people right now? Well, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's different now than when I started, when I started, I, I did not quit my regular job for 10 years. I carved for 10 years before I quit. But okay. the one reason I did, well, I stayed well, because I wasn't that good. I just didn't, I didn't jump forward like the carvers can nowadays. They just got so much more information coming in, and even if they sit and look at pictures all day, right? It, it jumps them forward. Uh, yeah, so I, I waited ten years. You don't have to wait that long nowadays, but yeah, and I didn't have to like slave hard at it because I fell in love with the carving. So I loved it. I loved to do it. Mm-hmm. But to get started, you got to put in long hours. You got got to. You gotta set that alarm clock and start carving early and and carve all day. Not even necessarily carve, but work because you got you got saw maintenance, truck maintenance, shovel sawdust and get logs and you know, I was always out driving out and getting logs and meeting meet my tree trimmers on the job and they would help roll it into my truck. And it was just a lot of, it is a lot of work, but but if you you know with, with like I said, with me like getting falling in love with it, it was it was easy to do. It was easy to put in the time, and and it sure helps being a penny pincher. Yeah. If you're if you're carving, if you're you know if you're carving hungry, that's good. You're going to carve hard and fast if you need some food. And I've seen carvers that I was at shows and they didn't have enough money to buy a hamburger, so. But the bad part of that is so then, then so many of those carvers sell their carvings like way too cheap. Right. Way too cheap. I used to go to shows and I wanted to sell almost every carving I had before I come home. I wanted to come home with maybe one, maybe two carvings. But then you have to work really hard to get more carvings for your next show. So I started learning if I up my price. I come home with twice as many carvings and then you didn't have to carve quite so many to get prepped to go to your next show. I mean, this is like selling when, when you would go and do a selling show right? or set up in the gas station parking lot or whatever, wherever everybody's marketing their carvings at. I don't know. Last summer, everybody, beginners should have made a decent profit this summer. I, man, I don't know. It's looking tough. So last summer prices were better. Oh man, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Every every carver I'm talking to, they're like, "Oh my goodness, we're making so much money." 
everything's selling really, really, really good. And usually everybody, well, carvers, carvers usually brag that they make a lot of money. Right? When you're at the fair, all the vendors, you know, whether they're, whether they're selling Koopy Doll or, or dolls or, or hamburgers, they usually plead poverty. They were actually saying that they were making money. First time in like 50 years I've ever heard vendors say that they were making money. <laughs> That's interesting. I wonder if it was like, I mean, I'm not an economist. I don't know. But I wonder if it was like the stimulus checks or people having time off because of COVID to go do stuff or it's interesting. I, I, I think so many people were sitting at home and they weren't out spending money. Right. So I think they actually had money and and they were just locked up for so long that that they just wanted to get out. And when they got out, they were just like, I think it reminds me of when teenagers get off the farm and they go party yeah. and they come. All right. Because <laughs> I know in Minnesota, there were way more like snowmobilers, fishermen, hunters, like everybody was getting outside. So our snowmobile boat prices and four-wheeler prices are just like through the roof because everybody's buying them. Yep. Same here. Same here. They're buying, they're buying a lot of going out into nature equipment. Yeah. You know, for some reason they all showed up at the fairs, which I wasn't, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would have seen that coming, but well, of course, you all sit back and we're like, it's just, is everybody going to come out because they were locked up so long? Or are they all still afraid of COVID and they're still locked themselves? And there was a lot of people that still locked their doors and, and locked their windows and wouldn't come out of the house. You know, And then the other part of them all that come running out of the house and jumped in the truck with pocketfuls of money and went to the fair. <laughs> you know? Sure. So uh, what... What did I not ask you? Is there anything else that we should talk about? No, no, I think that's, I think that's getting, that's getting to the end. Uh, I couldn't really think. The only other thing I could ever think of was, as I, I was thinking back, like when I was preparing for a competition, um, I can remember going up in the barn and going into like a stack of field and stream magazines that was like three feet high and just flipping through every magazine, looking for pictures and parts. And and I had a, I had one of those cameras that would t- take the picture like instant. So if I'm going to do an Indian shoot and a bow and arrow, I would like get in that position and have somebody take the picture, you know, and put it in my projector. But, but the whole thing of that was, was I always got so into it. I didn't even want to, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to eat. It was just that I don't know if all the carvers do that now when they're really getting into a project where they, where they just can get, can get so buried and concentrated into it. I'm sure there is. I'm seeing some of the work that the guys are doing out there and I'm like, yeah, they're into that. They're into that, that art trance that they're not going to break up until the piece is done. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it is incredible. I've I've been in the art trance several times and it is funny how you don't even eat or drink or do anything for hours and hours and then you kind of realize later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When somebody comes up, it's like, oh my God, no, don't talk to me. Don't make eye contact. Yep. <laughs> and I think friends and family members, they know it. They just they know enough to walk away. Right. Yeah. So they bring a sandwich. <laughs> and lay it 
say it was just five feet of the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, it's, it's uh, yeah, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying on your, this, this podcast. So I got to get on it. And, and uh, hell, last week, I didn't even know what one was. And here I am <laughs> on. I was pretty excited. Like I said, uh, I, so I commute, I drive to school every day. So I listen to podcasts, you know, about chainsaw carving or duck hunting, or I, I can I love them and I can get them through my phone too. So when I'm carving, I can listen to them, um, you know, on my, my earbuds or whatever I got going on. So, yeah. So, well then somebody's going to have a really long commute if they want to listen to this one. <laughs> I think we've been, that's yeah, right. Was, you can break it up into a couple different commutes. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, I was, I was listening last night. I flipped it on and was listening to Liz Bonnie's. And boy, she's a great talker. And boy, she could really. After listening to that, you really got a, a good idea of, of how the whole chainsaw carving thing happened. Yeah. Well, so I knew it because I was there. I I lived through it, but to listen to. Liz explained how it all come down and in steps and 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 built its way up and and you know she said she said it more than once that it it steers its own way and right. it goes where it's going to go and you can try and steer it a little bit to the right or left but chainsaw carving is going to go where it's where it goes you know and and it just a lot depends a lot depends on the artists themselves and you know, that there are and how they're marketing and how the world looks at it and how the world's buying it. And, 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 and then different aspects of the world, like the entertainment, we, we're still just barely scratching the surface of the entertainment end of the whole thing. Cause every, and then guys are saying about getting shows sponsored and this sponsored and that sponsored. Well, it haven't, it hasn't gotten picked up by television yet. Right. Like, like, or, or car racing or or something like that. I think once once the television picks it up and runs with it and then they can sell advertisements for it, that's that's when it's gonna really take off. And I don't know what's gonna push it in that direction. But that's a direction I'm gonna I'm looking forward to going. I don't know if it'll ever get there, but if right. it does, then it'll be like a like a shot in the butt to go so, so anyway i talked your ear off for an hour no that's fine i really appreciate you being on i know this takes it takes time and a little bit of preparation and it, it's awesome to talk to you thank you for listening to this episode of the chainsaw carving podcast be sure to go and check out the other episodes and it really helps out if you like the podcast give it a review or share it with your chainsaw carving friends